Hey folks, thanks for joining us online today. For those that may be joining us on Facebook or one of our other streaming platforms, or if you're watching this uh, later in the week or listening to it on your commute through our podcast, we are glad that you're here. And for those in the room, we're certainly glad that you're here too. The people in the room got a little bit of a preview uh, of our subject tonight. We're going to be talking about issues concerning homosexuality and transgenderism. And so one of the questions that I had before we got started was, uh, a bill that's currently being um, working its way through our uh, Congress right now. And so we've already talked about this subject a little. Uh, but we're going to talk about it according to the same framework that we have these other subjects in this worldview uh, uh, series and uh, how we can think about these things biblically and, and from a Christian perspective. And so I want to open us in prayer before we do that. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Um, that we can be together. I'm grateful, God, to be able to be back uh, here um, teaching on Wednesday nights after having to miss last week. And we pray, God, that you would bless our time together, that you would help us to think well, um, not just superficially, uh, but that we would, we would think deeply uh, and, and in a nuanced way, recognizing, God, that, that th- this is a difficult subject and, and it's one that, that families and people in our church are currently facing, some of which we know of and some that maybe we don't, that, that there could be people even in this room or watching with us right now that have struggled with some of these uh, issues for a very long time. And so God, would you allow this to be edifying and fruitful? But ultimately, Father, help us to speak the truth in love uh, and, and to say what the Bible says and not go beyond what the Bible says, uh, and to learn how to practice these things well uh, in a culture that has a has taken a definitively object uh, a definitively different stance than the biblical one. We pray. So help us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I do apologize for not being here. I didn't address that earlier. I wasn't here last week. Those of you that maybe have been joining us online. Uh, you were greeted with, with a uh, graphic that said, Ryan's not going to be here. And thanks for those that came uh, in person and our elders that led us through praying through our prayer guide. Um, I had a potential exposure to COVID-19 and went through the policies that we've set in place for our staff. It was fine when I was making the rest of our staff do it. I was not very happy about having to do it myself, though. Um, I was ready to change the policy. I even called Brian in and I was like, I don't want to do this. Help me find a way out. And I was like, no, I've said this is what we're going to do. Um, turned out to be nothing though. turned out I tested negative, but then even the person who had the symptoms that I was exposed to also tested negative. Got, he got his test results after I did, but the damage was done at that point. So I wasn't able to be here with you last Wednesday, but I'm glad that I'm, uh, I'm here with you, uh, tonight. So our subject tonight is homosexuality and transgenderism. I do want to recommend two books for you. Um, one is I've recommended this series um, already a couple of times as we've been talking about uh, these worldview issues, the Gospel for Life series. This is the Gospel in Same-Sex Marriage. Um, some people you know wrote some of the chapters in this, some people you've read or we've taught here before. Uh, John Piper wrote one of the chapters in here. Um, a very good chapter in this book. Uh, J.D. Greer, the current president of the SBC, pastors of the Summit Church, uh, wrote one of the chapters in this book. Really good chapter. His chapter is on how should the church respond. 
Um, uh, Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Seminary, wrote the chapter on how our culture is thinking about these things. So this, this book of this whole series, this book probably has the heaviest hitters as far as names you may recognize, and they do a good job. That whole series is really good. They do a good job. Um, another book is what, is what Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? It's written by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Kevin DeYoung is a Presbyterian, but we won't hold that against him. Um, he, uh, he pastors a Presbyterian church down in Charlotte now. For a long time, he was in, in Michigan and uh, for a brief period uh, was a was, uh, president or something like that of the Charlotte Reformed Theological Seminary. Very good thinker. And what he addresses in this book, one of the, the reason that I'm recommending two books, the thing that, that DeYoung does that's so helpful in this book is he addresses the, really the, the liberal opinion, and I'm using liberal as in theologically liberal opinion, that the Bible doesn't really talk about homosexuality in the way that we think it does. And so he goes chapter by chapter really like head on for the most of this book in saying, all right, well, let's address, let's address what does the word homosexual really mean that's used in scripture. Let's address Jesus's silence on the subject. Let's address um, Le- the Levitical law. Like, so so if, you're, if you've ever been asked some of those questions by friends or relatives, or maybe you've even thought about some of those, you've run across them and somebody's challenged what you believe the Bible has said, and they've asked you some of these questions because some of these people have developed some really clear and articulate talking points, and and they're really really good at saying, oh well, that's not what Paul meant, and oh Jesus never said that, and oh the law is gone, right? Uh, this book's great, just really really good at answering those questions. Both of these are really I never recommend books that I don't think are easy to read. Both of them are really easy to read. So um, more from a cultural standpoint, definitely biblical, but more from a, obviously it's, it's about life and culture, that series is, and this more from a biblical standpoint. I don't have a book. I am going to talk about transgenderism. I'm just going to cover everything that is LGBTQ, okay? Uh, and the T in that is transgender, and so I am going to talk some about transgenderism. What I realized as I was preparing for this is I don't have a good book on that subject. I thought I had one. I can almost picture it in my mind, but I don't know what it is, or maybe I dreamed I had one. I don't know. Uh, and so I need, to, I need to add to my library on that subject. I have done some reading on it, but it's been on all online, blog post, uh, article kind of reading uh, on, on that subject. So uh, if I do come across a good one, I'm just going to ask some friends and uh, see if some other guys have read something. If I do, I'll make a suggestion maybe in the coming weeks on that. So we're going to follow the same course that we've followed over the last several weeks uh, in, in thinking about these subjects because I've, I think this, this has been helpful. And I also think it's helpful to kind of follow that same pattern every week uh, because it helps you hopefully develop a, um, as we talk about developing a biblical worldview, it helps you develop uh, a metric f- where, whereby I'm not going to cover all, every subject that there is to cover, but you'll be able to then begin to think through some of these thing, same things. And so maybe you'll ask some of these same questions like, how did we get here as a culture? What does the Bible say? How does the gospel interact with this? How does the church need to then respond? Those are kind of the conversations that we've been having week in and week out. And I, I think by demonstrating that to you uh, over and over, hopefully it will help you. Although 
I do recognize that particularly in this first section, a lot of this has become a repeat in that the, the decline of morality within Western civilization that took place for much of the 20th century and has really sped right on down that track in the 21st century uh, really finds a lot of its roots in the same place. And so uh, what led us towards the same position, for instance, that our culture has had on not valuing life in the womb uh, are, are really a lot of the same root causes that have led our culture to having the same um, new understanding of uh, sexual morality. And so, but I just still want us to be able to think what, how Western civilization has progressed over the course of the last hundred or so years concerning this subject. It's important to remember in the first part of the 20th century, um, while uh, liberal elite institutions had already transitioned in uh, towards humanism uh, and naturalism, uh, the culture as a whole in the United States, outside of maybe uh, some prominent East Coast and West Coast cities, did not begin that transition until the 1960s when we began to see a major shift away from moralism and towards humanism. I called this in the, t in the talk on the subject of life, narcissistic hedonism, that the whole goal was to please myself, right? That um, that uh, I'm, I'm only consumed and, and with me and what I want, and what I want is what's going to make me feel the best. And so that really began, became the dominant view, humanism being the worldview, um, that humanity is the pinnacle of not God's creation, but humanity is the pinnacle of all things, and that human thought and human pleasure is, uh, the, is what matters the most. Well, that began to permeate into American society, uh, big cities first, west and east coast first, then down into uh, smaller cities in the Midwest and the South and the Southwest over the course of uh, some time. But prior to the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the only positive view of sex was within marriage. Now that doesn't mean there weren't people, have, there weren't people having sex outside of marriage uh, before then, right? We've, uh, we've all heard of the Roaring Twenties and I wasn't alive. I don't know that anybody in here uh, was alive during the Roaring Twenties, um, but we've all at least seen enough uh, World War II movies, right? Even into the 30s and 40s to know that young people were promiscuous during that time, uh, but it was, not, uh, it was not seen as a moral act by society as a whole. It was recognized by society as being other than what people should do. It was frowned upon, looked down upon until the sexual revolution of the late 1960s leading in the 1970s uh, where uh, it became more of the social norm for people to have sexual partners outside of marriage. That doesn't mean that homosexuality or even transgenderism became the norm during those times. It's not. But to know why we are where we are now, and this is, where I, this is why I keep coming back to this, is because to know why we're where we are now, it didn't just happen overnight. Somebody didn't flip a switch, right, in 2003, and all of a sudden everybody's okay with uh, homosexuality and everybody's okay with 
transgenderism and all of these things are now just uh, prolific within our society. This was a gradual progression, and it is still a gradual progression that is happening in our culture. And much of it traces back to that move towards humanism uh, that, that really got its spark in uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, which uh, you ended up with normalization of pornography, the normalization of divorce, uh, no-fault divorce, the eroding of traditional marriage, um, ultimately leading to a focus on self and self-definition. The idea that one gets to determine for themselves what they believe to be true about themselves, right? So this is why it was so important in the 90s and early part of the 2000s, the debate over, and people don't, this debate doesn't even rage anymore. Nobody even talks about this anymore. But if you'll think back to the conversation of the 90s and early 2000s, as it relates to homosexuals, the, 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 the conversation was about, are they born that way? Is a, is, is, a, is a gay man, a lesbian woman, a bisexual person, is that person born that way or not? Because if, if they're born that way, then the only person that can really determine their truth for themselves is, is themselves. And they, that ideology won the day, okay? I mean, we need to recognize where we are as a culture and just, just know this. They've won the hearts and minds of the majority of people in the United States. Um, and, and so what somebody believes to be true about themselves is their truth. And so if they believe that they are, not want to be, but are uh, a homosexual, a man that believes he's a woman, a woman that believes he's a man, a lesbian, or anything else on that spectrum, then that person gets to be that thing and... Where we have progressed now in society is they went from asking others to affirm that personal truth to requiring others to affirm that personal truth. Of all the things that I've taught, you need to recognize this, of all the things that I have taught and preached in this church, we have put every one of them on Sunday mornings on the internet. We have been for a while now putting Wednesday nights on the internet. This is the first one that I have, have think runs a decent risk of being taken down. You know, do you know that I've, we've never been edited? I mean, and I, listen, I proclaim the gospel and that sin is sin on Sunday mornings. We've never been edited. We've never been taken down. None of that has ever happened on any of our streaming platforms, on social media. This one could be because this has become a, a position where you do not get to just say, well, I disagree with you anymore. If someone believes this to be true about themselves, we are now being told by society that you must affirm that, which is why the question of the Equality Act is so important because what the Equality Act ultimately is attempting to do is to say, is to, to make federal law that says you've got to recognize somebody's truth as truth, even if your morality, your religion, and it's not just evangelical Christian religion, by the way, that would push back against this. Um, but we are, we should, and, and will be, 
uh, on the outside looking in as it relates to our culture's position. So that is where we are. We, need to, we have to understand that this isn't, a, this isn't a war, a battle that is even really being fought anymore. We, we've lost it. And, and I don't, uh, th- there are some things that I think are important for us to understand through that. Um, uh, and, and we're going to get to some of those things as we, talk about, as we talk about the church's response. But I do think there are a lot of Christians that are still holding on to the idea that somehow we can restore moralism instead of humanism to Western civilization. I'm, I'm of the opinion and I just, I'm of the conviction that that ship has sailed. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel won't change lives and that, that we couldn't see a revival, a gospel movement. But listen, the, the, I think the day of our culture, non-Christians, which is who it was in the early 20th century, you had a lot of non-Christians who were acting moralistic, okay? I think that day is long gone, and I don't think it's ever coming back. And I think that's what a lot of Christians are fighting the wrong battle. They're fighting the battle to bring back something uh, instead of actually fighting the real battle, which is the hearts and minds of people as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to end talking about that battle a little bit, but um, I, think it, I think recognizing where we are as a culture is really important. So what does the Bible teach concerning LGBTQ issues? First, and I'm just going to use that terminology, folks, because that's the terminology that our culture is using. I don't, I don't see any reason to, to not, those, those things stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer persons. Okay. It's just easier to, to say that. To, all right. So LGBTQ, what does the Bible teach? LGBTQ persons, no matter how far they deviate from the created order are still human beings worthy of dignity and image bearers. We have, we have addressed this in several weeks uh, as, as we've looked at what the scripture has to say, anytime we're uh, dealing with people, it's important for us, us to understand. The Bible demands that we ascribe dignity to every human life. Whether that human life is still in the womb, whether that human life is disabled and requiring care, whether that human life is at the end of their life, as we were talking about issues of life, or if that human has made the decision to act in such a way that is completely contrary to the word of God. They have still not strayed so far that they are without dignity as a human being. They have still not strayed so far that they are, that they are, are no longer image bearers of God. And I begin with that just to, to reset our brains sometimes because we, we want, it's easier for us to be us versus them. It's easier us for us to be tribe versus tribe, which is why tribalism is so popular in the United States now is because that's just, it's an easy default position. This is my team and anybody not on my team is the other team and they're, and, and we, we dehumanize them. And I don't want this. If you're someone in this room that struggles with this, you have loved ones that struggle with this, you're watching this right now and you struggle with this, know this. I affirm that you are a human being and you bear equally bear the image of God with every other person uh, who God has ever placed in his creation. And we should affirm that and we should recognize um, that that is true. However, the Bible also teaches some things about the actions 
that LGBTQ people take. First, any sexual relationship outside of a one-man, one-woman union in marriage is sinful. I could rephrase that and say this, every. I used the word any, and as I said it, I went, is the word every better? It may be better. Every sexual relationship, any, any kind of sexual contact outside of the way that God designed marriage to be in a committed marriage relationship between one man and one woman is sin. And we must call it that. Now, Romans chapter one helps us here. It helps us as it relates to homosexuality, but it's going to help us in some other things too. Let me start reading here in Romans one, starting verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the create the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relationship for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty uh, for their error. It's a really clear description of the results of a depraved mind. Now, who has a depraved mind? Every human being that has ever been born has a depraved mind. One possible result of a depraved mind is what Paul paints here. Sexual sin, sexual deviance. This men um, uh, having sexual relations with other men, women having uh, sexual relations with other women. He is very clear. There should be no debate on what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that this kind of sexual behavior, and this is sexual behavior outside of, outside of marriage, the way God defines it, is sinful. But Romans 1 also helps us to put it in context, because if we keep reading in Romans 1, we read this. Now, this is, I read verses 24 through 27. I'm going to pick up directly in 28, okay? I'm not skipping a whole bunch of stuff. This is immediately following. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased minds to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. If in verses 31 through 28 through 31 of Romans 1, you can't find yourself, I'm not really sure you're being fully honest with your own depravity. And I'm talking about yourself before Christ and your own proclivity towards certain sins. I mean, that, that's a pretty good list right there, right? Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious, gossip, slanders, insolent, haughty, boastful, um, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Like one of those words very, very likely describes you without Christ. And that list directly follows what he has said. So Paul could have taken any one of those things and expounded upon it like he did the sin of homosexuality. So we have to understand that there are many other sins that are equally as egregious and just as much birthed out of a depraved mind, which is the language that Paul uses here. That's not to excuse homosexual behavior. I'm not doing that at all. But I think what the church very often does 
is we take these sins that we don't have and we, we lift them up as these really egregious things that no Christian, no normal person, no right-thinking person, no moral person should ever do while we sweep ours under the rug a little bit, right? So by, by looking at all of what's said here, it's important for us to recognize this, it is sin, but it is not how some type of unforgivable sin, some type of sin that somebody could be in that the gospel is not going to reach them because it still can. Number two, marriage is defined by scripture is only between one man and one woman and is a lifetime commitment. Jesus tells the Pharisees this in Matthew 19. They ask him about divorce because they had basically made it to where a man could divorce a wife. Like there, there are lists in some of the writings of rabbis from that time of reasons a man could divorce his wife. And I'm not making this up. A man could divorce his wife in Jewish culture in the first century if, he, if, if she burned his supper. It was permissible for a man to give his, letter, give his wife a letter of divorce for burning his supper. So, so what do the Pharisees want? The Pharisees are wanting a religious excuse for really thinking badly about women and the sanctity of marriage. You got to see their attitude on marriage is just as bad as the attitude of those who want to redefine marriage today. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. The Pharisees wanted to redefine marriage. They wanted to be able to divorce a woman for any reason whatsoever. And, and not only be able to do it like you can in our society with no-fault divorce, but to be able to do it and still claim to be right with God. So this wasn't a, this wasn't a secular understanding of divorce. They were, they were looking for a religious reason. And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said, well, why did God give a command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, I say this every time I teach Connect class because I recognize that there are numerous people in our church, visiting our church, in our community that have experienced divorce in their past. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. It's not. Jesus isn't painting it like that. Remarriage, not an unforgivable sin. Jesus isn't repainting it like that. But we have to understand that it, divorce is something that God does not want to happen in our lives, that God wants us to hold the sanctity of marriage in high regard, and marriage as he has defined it. And so we, we've got to be careful again with, with saying, well, these people are trying to redefine marriage when the church in some ways over the last 30 years have been pretty complicit in the act of redefining marriage all along. But there is no such thing for a Christian. This is, I think, an important point. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It does not exist. John Piper in this book and in his other writings has always called it um, so-called same-sex marriage every time he mentions the word. And he says, and he explains in the book, he says, this is why I do this. Because I, I cannot ascribe what God has said is marriage to what these people are doing. 
marriage is between one man and one woman because that's what the Bible has said it is, and it is a lifetime commitment. Now, let's think about another letter in that LGBTQ, and that's transgenderism. What does the Bible say about that? Any gender identity that is outside of the way, the way in which God created man as male and female is sinful. God created, in Genesis 1:27, man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Men cannot become women. Women cannot become men. They can dress like them. They can take hormone therapy to, uh, rep- to suppress and repress certain uh, biological functions. They could even have surgery to make themselves look like someone. They can change their paperwork. But at the end of the day, if God made someone a man, that person is a man. If God made someone a woman, that person is a woman. And this even more so than the question of homosexuality right now is, is becoming, is, is almost rising above that, of, of the level of, uh, of importance to the secular society, right? Uh, to, to look at someone who has made this transition and to not give them, in their words, the kind of respect that they deserve because they are the ones who get to determine who they are, what their gender is, uh, has, has become a major issue within our society. It's not going to get better anytime soon. But what does the Bible say? That's the question we have to ask. The Bible says God made men and God made women. Now, what does that really mean, though? It, it means that from, from the, in, the, in the big picture of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman, it doesn't mean societal gender roles, right? So gender roles have, have, have always been somewhat fluid from one, and I'm not saying gender is fluid, okay? Because that's terminology that's being used in our culture. But the roles that men and women have filled from one society and one culture to the next often change. And we need to recognize that only how the Bible defines men and women is what matters. It's not, you know, so in some cultures, you know, manly men hunt. And if you don't hunt, then you're not a real man, right? Well, that kind of thinking actually does damage to the cause, to, to, to the Bible's understanding of men and women. A man doesn't have to like to hunt. A woman doesn't have to like to bake cakes. They may, but there's nothing that says they have to like doing these things that for a long time in Western civilization, Elizabethan understanding, right? We, we got all this stuff from Europe. This, this, we kind of had these, for a few hundred years, these defined roles and anything outside of that was seen as abnormal, but that's not what this is about. This isn't about saying that a man has to like to do certain things or that a woman has to like doing certain things. It's to say that the way that God made a person is the way that he made them. Now, it is also important to recognize there are very rare medical circumstances where from, from birth, some ambiguity about a person's sex exists. I get this question sometimes from people. Well, what about those who, who have one of these 
uh, rare medical circumstances where maybe they have um, both uh, reproductive organs. Or what about one that may not have any visible? And these, these type of uh, situations exist. They're rare, but they do exist. And we have to, we have to approach this and understand from a, from a doctrinal point of view, right? So we just think biblically about this. Why does it exist? Why does, why does anything wrong with me or with you, anything abnormal exist? It exists as a result of the fall doesn't mean that person did something to deserve that doesn't mean that person's parents did something to deserve that right but anything that would exist outside of perfect created order the way that God made it it's because of the fall and so we we first say that this is not the way that God would have intended it then but it is certainly a result of the fall but they are the way God made them now and we can affirm that, that, is, that they are still image bearers of God, that they are created in the image of God, that they are worthy of full dignity. And we can recognize uh, that they're faced with difficult choices and choices that they'll need to make, that parents will need to make. Um, and we can support them in that without making this person have to feel like they don't belong. But again, these are rare circumstances. This isn't saying somebody who just believes they are the opposite gender. This does not happen as often as uh, one might, as, as some might think it does. It's also important to look and see what the Bible has to say about desire versus action. Because same-sex desire, the, the attraction towards someone of the same sex for a lesbian or a gay person or even a bisexual person, or even the attraction for a transgender person or a person that has that kind of attraction to say, maybe I want to be the opposite gender, isn't the same thing as actually practicing the lifestyle. Listen to one of the places that Paul talks about homosexuality and see if you can pick up on the important word here. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual or moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The important word there as it relates to homosexuality is the word practice of homosexuality. All of these are active verbs. These are things people do, right? The sexually immoral practice sexual immorality. Idolaters practice idolatry. Adulterers practice adultery. These are acts that people do. They're, they're lifestyles that people live. And so we have to be willing to have enough nuance in our conversation to realize and this might be difficult for some of you, but, but I think it's going to be helpful for if you can get to this point where you recognize that there are going to be people who desire holiness, who have been changed, radically changed by the gospel, who struggle for the rest of their lives with an attraction that you'll never understand. Just as you, having been radically changed by the gospel and saved by Jesus still struggle with some of the same temptations that you struggled with before your salvation. 
And when you act on those temptations post-salvation, you don't question your salvation. You recognize it as sin and you repent of it. And they too must recognize that the action is sin, but that the temptation is something that we should work to to modify and to change, but there is a difference between that kind of desire and the actual action. James writes about the the difference between desire and sin in James chapter 1. Starting in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, we must first be careful not to affirm that God made someone some way, because the Bible says, when you are tempted, do not say, I am being tempted by God. So it is unfair, it is not right for the, for the pot to say to the potter, right, to borrow from Romans 9, why did you make me this way? It's not as if God made a person to be uh, a lesbian or a gay person or a transgendered person. God did not make them that way. But we are all, because of our sin nature, we all have certain proclivities towards sin. Some of those are nature. We talked about nature and nurture in one of the previous worldview sessions about our own worldview, that our own worldview is this combination of who we are as as our wiring as a person, our DNA, and part of our worldview is made up of how we were raised, and both of those are contributing factors. And the same is true for LGBTQ people, that some of it is some of it's nature, some of it's nurture, but all of it, we, all of it is desire, which then he says, and this is the next thing that's important here, when it conceives gives birth to sin. So it doesn't start out as sin, just as when a man lusts after a woman, it doesn't start out as sin. It ultimately becomes that way when he dwells on the thought in, in a sinful way or acts on the thought in a sinful way. And the same is true for an LGBTQ person. And, and so the church, I think, has done some, we're getting better at this, but I think in the last couple of decades, we've actually done some damage by thinking that a person gets saved and they're not going to have to deal with this struggle or battle anymore. They're very much still going to have to deal with this struggle and battle, just as you, if you were a covetous person before you were saved, are going to have to deal with the fact that you probably still covet some things after you're saved. Because sanctification takes a while. It's a process. So then how does the gospel relate to LGBTQ issues? Three things here. Number one, no one who still draws breath is too deep in their sin for the gospel to awaken their hearts. Don't give up on people. Don't don't give up on people. Here's what I'm certain of. There, There are people in this room who have people they love deeply who are involved in this sin. Their family members, their longtime friends, their coworkers, their neighbors. And you love these people deeply. Don't, don't give up on them. Don't, don't think that anyone is ever too far gone for Jesus um, to uh, open their hearts to the truth of the gospel and, and to bring about salvation. Because if that's true of anyone, it's true of everyone, right? If that's true of them, then it's true of me. If it's true of them, then it's true of you. Because if any of us could have been too far gone, all of us would have been too far gone. So as long as they still draw breath, there is still hope. And we want to recognize that truth in the gospel, that that there is always hope for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
Number two, the gospel demands repentance from sin when we believe the gospel. In Mark 1:15, Jesus begins his ministry by saying, "The time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, the, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is the gospel. But notice to what Jesus ties there. He ties directly to believing the good news, an act of repentance. That word repent in the Greek literally means to change the way that you think. It, it, there is an action to it, right? We often talk about it as being a turning, maybe a turning from sin and self and a turning towards uh, the cross and, a, and towards Christ. But it, it, it's something that begins up here, just like sin does, right? Sin begins, as James 1 says, is that desire in your mind. And then when that desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. The same is true. Repentance begins, well, a step back. I believe <laughs> I believe regeneration precedes repentance. So it begins in your heart. The Holy Spirit changes your heart. Your mind then changes. And because your mind changes, then your actions change. But it would be, it would be inconsistent of us to affirm what many other so-called churches have affirmed. And that is that a person would not need to walk away from an LGBTQ lifestyle if they were to come to the faith in the gospel. That, that is inconsistent with the teachings of scripture. Just as I would say, for someone to come to the gospel, they must be willing to walk away from any other lifestyle. I would say that to someone cohabitating with their, with, with a, in a heterosexual relationship. I would say that to somebody uh, who, uh, who, deals falsely in business practices. I would say that to somebody who is uh, an alcoholic. I would say that to, to anybody who is living a lifestyle. Of, you cannot hold on to that lifestyle of sin and truly respond to the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. Change your mind. And so we, we have to preach the gospel in that way to people. Again, it's, it's not asking people to clean their lives up so that they can come to Jesus. It's telling people that when you come to Jesus, there will be a desire to do what Jesus did. The order's really important. And for a long time, I think the accusation against the church has been, we've been telling people, you gotta get your life straight so that you can then serve Jesus. And, and that's damaging. It's damaging to the truth of the gospel. We don't get our lives straight to come to Jesus, no matter what it is. We come to the gospel, we come to saving faith in Jesus, and then that change happens inside of us. So we must demand that repentance be a part. Now, we're not, again, this, this is a long road that we walk with people, recognizing that when people are turning away from a lifestyle of sin that's deep-seated, that they're going, this is going to be a long road and, and, a, and, and one that the temptation, unless God just works in a miraculous way, which does happen. And people want to come sometimes and be like, read this book about this guy. He was a homosexual and he got saved and he never had another homosexual temptation. It's like, great. The problem is that doesn't happen 99% of the time, right? There, there are a lot of other Christians who are writing about their struggle and are living a faithful Christian sexual ethic who will still admit, I, I still will have these temptations and these struggles. And, and we've got to recognize that that person has repented and is, is living a life of repentance that maybe some of us don't even fully recognize because we don't 
and really know what that struggle is like. Number three, LGBTQ identity, like other worldviews, is a major, can be a major obstacle to the gospel. I want to illustrate this outside of this subject because I think it's helpful. Because when we were introducing worldviews, one of the worldviews that we introduced was the worldview of Islam. Because Islam is a world, it's a dominant worldview. Uh, it is a worldview of the scale, right and wrong, good and evil. I have to do more good than I do bad. And um, I've, in the last 12, 14 years, have spent a lot of time around Muslim people, particularly in West Africa. And one of the, probably the greatest hurdle to the gospel there is not the Muslim religion. It's not, it's, it's not them saying, oh, I like this. Look, when, when, when presented with the truth of Islam versus the truth of Christianity, nobody's going to say, oh, I would really much rather Islam. <laughs> okay? Like grace versus works. Grace is going to win every time in that comparison. Okay? That's not the struggle. The struggle is the identity of being a Muslim in a Muslim world, in a Muslim family, in a Muslim village or town or city, in a Muslim culture, and to turn their back on that, to not be that anymore, what their families have been forever. We experienced this on a mission trip in Kosovo. You don't think about Kosovo, Eastern Europe being a Muslim country, but it is. And the people that are there, they're not good, as far as like how Muslims would view them, they're not good Muslims at all. They're not good at practicing their faith very much at all. But they are, they are very dedicated to being culturally a Muslim because of what they experienced during genocide and war in their country. To turn your back on that is to turn your back on your grandfathers who gave their lives so that you could be that ethnic minority in that part of Europe. The same is true within the LGBTQ community. Because it is a worldview and because it is an identity worldview and one that people so distinctly tie their, their defining characteristics to, it becomes very difficult because it becomes that, that thing that defines them. They are above everything else a homosexual person, a transgender person, a bisexual person. They are above all else. And, and because this is what that worldview has taught them, they have to elevate above everything else. And so when Christianity comes and says, repent of that, the offer of grace may sound very nice to them. And they may look at it and think, man, this, this really makes a whole lot of sense, but you're asking me to turn away from not just a lifestyle. You're asking me to turn away from my very identity. I think it is very, very similar to when we ask a Muslim to believe the gospel and to come to Christianity. And I think, I think those things are very similar things. It is, it's who you are, right? Um, and and we, have, we, have to, we have to recognize that as we're thinking about how we present the gospel and how we talk about the gospel uh, with people. Um, because for those who may have grown up in church, 
believing the gospel. You, you believe the gospel at a young age. We're saved. You were taught it from birth. You believed it from a young age. You came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. You weren't asked to give this really radical turn in your life. doesn't mean that you weren't equally saved. doesn't mean that it didn't take just as much miraculous power to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, right? Your works didn't contribute anything to it because you were raised a good Christian boy or girl. But because so many of us weren't asked to make this like radical lifestyle altering identity shattering decision, we don't understand what we're often asking people to do. Doesn't mean we shouldn't ask them to do it. Doesn't mean the gospel doesn't demand we do it. Just means we need to go into it with eyes wide open of who they really are, of, of how challenging it would really be because of where they have found their identity. To remember a lot of these people, I mean, when you look at statistics on this, I mean, a lot of these people um, have, have significant family and home life issues and they, they have become who they've become because they found a group of people that were accepting of them and they found their identity in that group of people. And that group of people loved them who they are, were who they are, you know? And so because they loved them for who they are and they found their identity there, it, it's a big ask, um, like it is from other worldviews. Finally, number four, the church's actions concerning LGBTQ issues. Now, I have five things here, so I'm going to have to move relatively quickly. Um, number one, be loving without being affirming. That may sound contradictory. And if somebody's watching right now who disagrees with me uh, on um, what the Bible says about homosexuality, they're probably screaming at their computer screens right now. You can't do that. If you're going to love somebody, you have to love them for who they are. And you Listen, be loving. I think that needs to be our action regardless. I think the church is getting better at this in, in, in a myriad of ways. We're getting better at this. Uh, I think it's an indictment on the church that, that we were shunning young girls that got pregnant back during the 20th century, right? We were hiding them in closets, sending them off to live with the ants. We were embarrassed of them, acting like they couldn't come to church. Now we're throwing baby showers for single moms to the crisis pregnancy center. Not, and, and listen, not affirming the lifestyle choice that got them to where they are, but loving them. Now, how do we take that same thing, that same principle, and apply it to these issues, right? That's how we have to think as a church. How can I love these people without saying your actions are right in the eyes of God? How can I do that? And, and it's a difficult conversation, but it's one we need to be willing to have. So we're loving without being affirming. Now, I think the closer you get to a situation, the more difficult this becomes, is, is what words do you use and, and where do you go and what do you do, right? But the, the key to this is to love people while still making clear that I'm not saying I support what you do. Um, and this should be the way that we interact with anybody who is living in sin. I, I, I love you. I'm going to continue to love you but I'm not going to affirm the action. Uh, number two, this was actually my number one. I skipped my number one. Be loving, I had two be lovings. Be loving while speaking the truth. It works fine as a number two as well. Ephesians four or five, rather speaking the truth in love. 
Listen, the truth is loving. Lies aren't loving. But the truth can be spoken in such a way that it is not loving. You've, we've all experienced this in our lives. Like somebody has tried to tell us something that was true and we needed to hear. And they came across as hateful and con- condemning and we didn't want to listen to what they had to say, did we? Right? Because we didn't want to hear. They weren't being very loving. And um, social media has made this like 500 times worse because nobody's loving on social media, <laughs> you know, hardly at all. Everybody just wants, you know, you just, man, we just go at each other. And we're called to speak the truth in love. It is loving to speak the truth, but it's loving to speak the truth in a loving way. And so we want to be loving, we want to be truthful, but we want to do so without affirming wrong action. Number three, be willing to have difficult conversations, recognizing that there is no one-size-fits-all solutions to dealing with LGBTQ issues. Um, I found it interesting. My, my last church used to, uh, we ordained quite a few young men to gospel ministry. We had a, a really neat program there that brought people through um, ministry and, and some of those young men are pastoring churches now. And uh, in that, it, when we would get to the final stage of ordination, there was one of our lay elders at the church who would always, always ask this question. If your neighbors, if somebody bought the house next to you and they pull up and the moving truck and they're two homosexual men in a so-called same-sex marriage and they ask you, will you help us move in the house? Would you do it? And I can always remember, and most of these young men, I like grew up in my youth group, you know, and I've known, I, I knew them, some of them better than maybe anybody in the room. And I could just watch those wheels turning because they're like, oh man, I know I want to be loving, but I don't want to be affirming. I know, like, I don't know sure what I want to do. And you know what I never did? I never asked him, how would you answer that question? I think he just wanted to make them think is really what I wanted, I think he wanted to do. I don't, I'm not sure that they're, that there is a right, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to some of these things. I think it's a good illustration that nuance is important. How far do we go? We have to ask questions like, how far do we go in normalizing someone else's sin? How far do we, you know, like I kind of struggled a little bit today. That's why I prefaced it at the beginning, using the phrase, using the, the acronym LGBTQ, because it is a definitively secular acronym. And I wanted to say, well, is there a better biblical one? There may have been, but it was, it was going to be easier for me just to communicate with you what I was talking about by using that acronym. So that's what I've chosen to use. And I hope that's been okay. Right. But the, the closer these people get into our lives, whether it's a same sex neighbor, whether it's a homosexual relative child, whether it's someone who's coming out to us as transgender in our home, in our workplace, how do we deal with these things? Listen, there is not a one-size-fits-all issue for this. There's just not. And if you say, well, I know what I'm going to do in every situation, that probably means you've never been put in any of these situations. Because it's the, the closer it gets to you, the more difficult this becomes. And Piper actually talks in, in, the, in the, his section of this book again about that. I think it's, it's interesting. He talks about 
transgenderism and, um, and names, and, and am I going to call someone by, no, wait, it's not in this book. It was in something he wrote on Desiring God um, about, uh, about names as it relates to, you know, someone who has transitioned from male to female and what name are you going to use? And he actually ends on, um, if it's a neighbor, that was the illustration, if it's a neighbor, because names shift from one culture to the next and you know, he said, I would probably call them at least at first by whatever name they introduce themselves as. But I would likely draw the line at, at um, male and female pronouns, right? And he says, names are kind of arbitrary, but pronouns and bathrooms aren't. So, right, but those are, those are conversations. We gotta be willing to kind of approach with people, recognizing that there's nuance there. Number four, being willing to, Walk the long road of sanctification with people. I know, I know I've already addressed this, so just quickly, be willing to recognize people are going to suffer um, through their sanctification, just as you've suffered through yours. If your process of sanctification hasn't included any you know, personal internal struggle and suffering, I wonder about your sanctification, right? There's difficult things we've had to give up for the cause of Christ in our own lives and Christ likeness. And um, we need to be willing to walk down that road with people. Number five, actually it's, no, number, yeah, five, actually it's six. The church cannot allow itself to be bullied into silence. The society, if our society continues on its current trajectory, they are going to try to bully us into silence. You know, we started this, this by talking about the equity act. I mean, look, that, that stuff's coming. I, I've said this for years. I believe it's coming. Um, I believe there's going to be a day that this talk right here is against the law in the United States. And it doesn't scare me. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not really someone, I tell Christy, I'm not like built for jail. Like that doesn't, not something I really want to happen, but I, I would give this talk whether it's legal or not. And we have to recognize that. We cannot be pushed into a corner and, and, and be silent over it. So, so don't, the church, because we're talking about what the church, the church as a whole, we as individual Christians, don't be silenced in a bully. Now, again, don't respond to bullying with other bullying. And that's what people are doing. That's what Christians are doing right now, particularly online. They're responding to bullying with bullying. We don't do that. We respond to bullying with speak the truth in love. Right? We don't fight fire with fire. That's not the gospel's answer. It, how that has worked its way into Christian vernacular, right? That somehow we need to respond in kind to the world and that that becomes acceptable. That is not at all what Jesus taught. It's not at all what the scriptures tell us. We, we don't respond to bullying with more bullying. We respond by speaking the truth in love. Don't value the fighter because you happen to agree with him. Value the person that's gentle and meek and like Jesus <laughs> because those are the things Jesus told us to be and demonstrated for us. Number five and number six, um, be mindful of how culture wars and political activism can hurt the mission of the church. Now, I know it's 7.30, but I can't stop there because some of you are like, wait, what? So I'm gonna talk for another three minutes and I'll be done. I'm not saying don't stand up for what's right. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying don't participate. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't be politically active. I'm not saying don't engage in those kind of conversations. 
But we have become very good at fighting all of these peripheral battles and missing what's really going on. I think it's one of the ways that the church has been marginalized so well by our culture. So we have become so easily distracted. The number of Christians, I, I'm probably gonna offend some people and I just be okay. The number of Christians that I've seen just rage about Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss over the last couple of weeks is pretty disappointing to me. And here's why. Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss are not the mission. They're not the point. They're distractions. And, and in truth, they didn't even regender Mr. Potato Head. They just, right? I mean, you still go by Mr. Like, there's so much of that. It's just so frustrating to me. It's like, how much energy and effort are we going to spend fighting these battles that don't even really matter? So I'm not saying don't, don't speak truth. I'm not saying don't participate. I'm just saying there are far more important things than we can deal with than the gender neutrality of a toy, right? Maybe keep your ammunition dry. Do you remember that? That's, that's a military term, isn't it? Right? Keep, keep your ammunition dry. You don't have to respond to every little cultural thing because people stop listening to you. I'm, I'm convinced of that. We have lost a lot of our gospel witness because of Facebook and Twitter because people stopped listening to us because we have complained about every little thing in the world. And these are important conversations to have. Look, gender and sexuality are very important conversations to have. But let's, let's have a good conversation based on what the Bible says instead of just getting mad at every little thing. And so we gotta be mindful of when we're fighting battles that actually hurt the mission of making disciples and proclaiming the gospel to the nations um, and, and pick, our, pick our battles well. I'm not saying shrink into a corner. I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying let's pick our battles well, recognizing that um, there, there, are, there are good times and good subjects for us to, to speak into. I actually think the Equality Act is, is one of them. I mean, that, that matters. Right? Whether they sell a potato with a mustache or not doesn't, but that matters. The, these, these are the kind of the, the redefinition of marriage in our society. I was for the church battling for traditional marriage. I wasn't at this church during that time, but I was for the church doing that because that mattered. We just, we need to do things that matter. We need to do it in love, speaking the truth to people. I know, look, I only had an hour. I, I didn't cover nearly, some of you are dealing with this in your own homes, your own families, your own workplaces. And I didn't deal with nearly enough, um, but I've recommended some good books. I am gonna try to find a good transgender book and recommend that. I mean, I even rec recognize that a lot of you are like government employees where you're mandated of what kind of language and pronouns and verbiage and things you can say. Like, there's just so much that's difficult about this. So I've probably just barely skimmed the surface, but I hope I've given you some good resources and a little bit of encouragement. And hopefully we think um, biblically about this. So let me, let me close this in prayer because I've, I've already gone over. Thank you, God, um, that you spoke to us clearly. Would you help us to speak clearly in love to people? Truth, but loving. Walking with people the long road. Demonstrating the patience that 
Christ demonstrated to us and the patience, the, the great patience that he had with his disciples, the great love and care that he showed for prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Help us to show that as well. Uh, let us, God, be people that stand for truth, uh, but do it in a way that points people to Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for those that joined us online. I look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for those that are in the room with us.